So we are starting a new series this week called Alternate Reality. And I promise you I'm going to make up for last week where I kept you guys way too long. I wasn't watching the clock, so I apologize for that. But I could have gone on and on and on. But as we get into this, this is something that the Lord put on my heart about three or four months ago. And, I, you know, as, as I'm always, you know, praying, God, where are we going next? What are we doing? You know, the, the, the heart of it is, is we're always going to be a church that teaches what the Scriptures say. We're not going to talk about it as if it's just something that's kind of out there in a small part of our life. The crux of who we are as a believer comes from Scripture. If we did not have the Bible, we would not know anything about who God is, how He moves, His expectations for us. We would know the plan of salvation. There's so much that we take for granted that we don't think about. And so when we talk about this idea of the alternate reality, it's introducing today this concept is that there is a separation, a line of uh, delineation, if you will, between a believer and a non-believer, okay? And when I say that, I want to be very clear in what I'm saying, because we were having this discussion this week with some different folks, is that a believer is not one who believes in God, okay? I want to make that very clear. In James, it talks about, you believe that there is one God? Good, so do the demons, and they tremble. It's not belief that God exists. There's a lot of people out there that have a belief in God. And when we hear that term, we always think, what do we mean? We think God the Father, the way we think of it. But that may not be what they think of. So when I say believer versus non-believer, I am saying born-again individual, life committed to Christ versus one who is not. Because there are only two types of people in this world. It doesn't matter if you're short, tall, fat, thin, black, white, pick any color. You have hair, you don't have hair, perhaps you used to have hair. Maybe you miss your hair. I don't know, but the bottom line is this. None of those things matter. It ultimately comes down to, are you a born-again believer or are you not? That's the separation. Now, the distinction between the two is clear. We've read about it ad nauseum. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This new creation is a transformation that takes place based on what? Is it based off you being baptized? Is it based off of you giving money? Is it based off of you being a good person? Is it based off of any merit that you bring to the table whatsoever? The answer to that is absolutely not. Nothing you can do can make you right with God. If it were possible, Jesus would not have needed to come. The Old Testament law... The sacrifices would have been sufficient. As we know, the high priest, every year on the Day of Atonement, he would have to go and sacrifice for himself. He'd mikvah, cleanse, change his clothes, all of that. Then he would go on behalf of the nation of Israel, make those sacrifices, eventually enter into the most holy place, sprinkle blood, all that, all of that jazz. And he had to do it what? He had to do it perfectly. Because the consequences of not getting it perfect was death wasn't like, oh man, better luck next year. It was death. So therefore, we know he got every detail right, or he didn't come out, right? So if that was good enough, and reaching a point of, let's just call it perfection, the act he was doing had to be perfect, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to come. So there's nothing that we can do that makes us right with God. There's nothing that we can experience that makes us right with God. There's nothing that we can inherently think or say that makes us right with God. It is simply an acceptance of the work that Jesus has done that makes us right with God. 
All of the things that come after that can be good things, and they're a result of the change, the new creation that we are, but they're not what made us that. So you've got the new creation, which implies what? The other side is the old creation, which is death and all of this stuff. So there's two realities that are going on. There is the Christian side. I even hate to use that term anymore. And then there is the non-Christian side. The Christian side is not somebody who says they're a Christian. It is based off of what Scripture says makes us a follower of Jesus. That's literally what a Christian is, a disciple of Christ. So if that is true, then the realities that we look at are different. And I want to show you that today in Scripture. I want to introduce this idea that many of you, this is not going to be profound. You're not going to walk away, man, I learned so much today. Because this is getting everything started off on the same page. From the beginning, we have to understand something. There is a natural side and a supernatural side. So let's define the term, reality, what is it? It's the world or the state of things as they actually exist as opposed to an idealistic or not a notional idea of them. The second definition, the state or quality of having existence or substance. Now let's stop here. We're going to focus our attention on number one. The world or the state of things as they actually exist as opposed to to an idealistic or notional idea of them there's one that we could just bring up as an example right now that's in our culture today of the way the things are really are in the real world versus this utopian concept that just sounds all flowery and be perfect. But every time it's been tried, it has never worked. It's led to starvation, it's led to death, and an abuse of power to a degree that you and I have never experienced. Anybody want to take a stab in the dark of what I might be addressing? Socialism. Boy, doesn't it sound sweet? Wouldn't it be wonderful that regardless of the results of the effort that you put in, The outcome is always the same. Wouldn't that be great? I wish my teachers were socialists when I was growing up. I wouldn't have had to take 10th grade English three times. That's not a joke, unfortunately. Here's the thing. It's when we look at how money moves and economics. I'm not going to sit here and say that capitalism is the end-all, be-all. There's issues inside of it. There is no perfect Metric. No matter what happens, bad people do bad things. And you give bad people enough money, they'll just compound the issue. But if you take away the ability to earn and make decisions and allow people who don't enjoy your product to not buy your product, then the outcome is what? Poverty, eventually. You see, this is the idea of what actually exists versus this idealistic notion of it. Now that's cute and we get that, we see that today, we see what's going on there. The ideas sound really good and flowery, but they never work in the real world. How do we know that? We've seen it tried umpteen times. I love how they say, but we'll get it right this time. I love how they say that, because you know, you're smarter than all the people that came before you. If there's one thing that we have proven, we are dumber as a society than we ever have been. And we continue to prove that each and every day. But there's another side of this. It's the world or the state of things as they actually exist. Now, what does that mean? You see, when we're looking around the world around us today, if I were to talk about this building, you would, as you walked in, you would have said, man, it's made of metal, and then half of the front has this incredible stonework that is happening, right? Doesn't that look awesome? Yeah, Jim Egan's will never 
volunteer for anything ever again. He's sitting there like, why did I get myself into this? You know, they have been working day and night trying to get that done, and we are very grateful for that. But you'd walk in, you'd see the metal, you'd see the stone. You're like, man, look at the drywall. Whoever did this did a great job. Love these paint colors. Look at this tile work. Isn't that nice? You'd walk in. Some of you are shaking your head now like, I don't really like that color. That's ugly. Who picked that tile? Why do we have purple carpet? I mean, you know, whatever. Okay, those are things that we'll argue about another day. But you'd walk in here and you would experience different things. But here's the thing. What you're seeing is not reality. Because here's what we know. All of the solid objects are actually made up of non-solid matter, of things that we cannot see. This is not reality. The reality is, is what it is made of. Getting down to the finest detail. I know this is weird, okay, but I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. You see, what we necessarily see and think and experience isn't always reality to what's going on. And this is where we have to be careful because my premise is this. We as believers, born-again, spirit-filled believers, have a reality that was given to us by God, which would make it true. And with that reality, it means that when we see things, we see them as they really are. When we hear things, we hear them as they really are. When we speak things, we are speaking things as they really are. When we experience things, we experience them as they really are. And with all of that comes an expectation of to act and say and think and be in this world. Has anybody ever seen the movie The Matrix? I almost hate to even use this as an analogy because it was so overblown in the church world. We're really good at this. But in the Matrix, remember, he had the red pill and the blue pill. And I don't remember which was the good one. Do you guys, anybody remember which was the red pill that woke him up or was the blue pill? Anybody? Huh? Red pill? Okay. And so he was basically, you know, they had this hooked up and he lived in this reality and life was golden and all of that. And then he took the pill and it opened his eyes to see what things were really like. Okay. There was also that movie, The Truman Show, similar thing. He was living his life and everything was all kosher, but he just knew there was something more and he just couldn't wrap his head around it until things started to not add up any longer. And, you know, all of these things. You guys are looking at me. Has anybody not seen these movies? Okay, all right, whatever. You see, the reality was something different than what he was experiencing. It wasn't until the knowledge came that it opened their eyes to what the real world was like and what was really going on. Now, for you and I as born-again believers, this comes from one place and one place only. That is from the Scriptures. Now, some of you may argue with me and say, well, what about the leading of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit will never lead you away from the Scriptures. It is the basis. Yes, we might have a revelation of something from the Holy Spirit, but it will never contradict the Scriptures. It always goes back to that. And if that's true, then we have what we call a biblical worldview. So when we look at things around us that are happening in this world, we should look at them from a heavenly perspective and not an earthly one. And this is where the transition has to begin. Because what has happened inside of the church today, the body of Christ as a whole, is that we are far more earthly focused than we are heavenly focused. I know a number of believers that are just counting down the day for Jesus to return because they can't wait. They want to experience the rapture. They want to go. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what about all the people that you may know, love, and care about that don't 
have never experienced the goodness of God. Maybe they've rejected it, but I want them to have one more day. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is where we're at. We're always me-centered. Look at most of our worship songs. What are we worshiping? Ourselves. Most of them are written about us and what God can do for us and all of that. There's nothing wrong with a psalm, but the reality is, is we've got to focus our attention back to God. What he said, what he's done, and how we are to perform and act as a result of that. Now, I want to begin to show you some things in Scripture today. This is, as I said, not going to be the deepest thing, the most profound thing. I promise you this, okay? This is my money-back guarantee. It'll be shorter than last week. That's my guarantee, all right? But I want to show you some things that in Scripture, most of which you guys will be familiar with, but perhaps we just not thought this through. We're going to start in 2 Kings, okay? This is a passage I know that you guys have all heard. 2 Kings chapter 6. A lot of stuff going on here. I'm not going to lay out the context because this is pretty self-explanatory. Verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. And he consulted with his servants saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel saying, Beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are coming down there. Now stop for a minute. So let me just lay this out. He's telling his advisors, here's where we're going to go. They're going to attack Israel. The man of God that it references is the prophet who sends word and said, Listen, don't go over there. They're going to be there. Guys, with me so far? Okay. Verse 10, then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, he thinks he's got a spy. And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elijah the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So, did Elisha have a plant there? Did he wiretap the king's bedroom? No. How did he know what the king was planning? He's a prophet of God. Okay? He's getting this from the Lord. So he is warning the king of Israel. Verse 13. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So imagine, he's freaking out. Because now the king is surrounded. There's an army there looking to take him out. Now how would you react? Think about this. Put yourself in their shoes. Would you freak out? The answer is yes, you would. Don't be spiritual. You're lying. We'd all freak out. God, what are you going to do? How are we going to get out of this? Look what he says. Verse verse 16. He answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, this seems to happen just moment by moment. We don't know how much time elapses in this entire thing. But look what he says. As the guy's freaking out, as many were freaking out, there was a man of God. He could be a prophet, he could be a pastor, he could be a... It doesn't matter. What does he say? Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, here's the thing. Who is with them? Nobody. If 
somebody says that, you're thinking, Elisha's been in the sun a little too long. Maybe he's getting too old. The dementia is setting in. That's cute, Elisha. I'm glad there's people here. How are we getting out of this? But what did he say? He said, Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see. And what happens when he sees? The mountains full of horses and chariots. You see, Elisha's reality was God's reality. The servant's reality was the earthly reality. Do you guys see the distinction there? Was Elisha moved by the army of Syria? Not even a bit. He did not care. Was the servant moved by the army of Syria? Absolutely. So would you and I. Now let's put this into a perspective that we can think of. What happens when the news says there's another pandemic coming? How do we respond? What happens when they talk about the next recession and the housing crisis and the next thing? How are we moved? By the reality of this world or the truth that's found in Scripture? You see, that's the distinction. It's an alternate reality. And the alternate reality is the true reality. You see, when we look at this, we are seeing a byproduct of these atoms and motions, and I don't pretend to understand any of this. If you really want to understand that more in depth, don't ask me. Ask Adam. He knows everything, okay? He's back there. He'll be signing autographs later today. What happens is when your brain gets so big, your hair goes away. That's what happens. So that's so you know. So, all right? That'll be $20, just so you know. You know, the thing is, guys, is that this is what I'm talking about. You see, they were not moved. Elisha was not moved because he knew that God was there. Could he see them in the moment? We don't know. It appears to be. But he knew. Okay? We could do this time and time again. But let me show you some other verses, and we'll look at other stuff in the weeks to come. John chapter 17. Like I said, I'm just going to show you some of this stuff. Verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak into the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, who's speaking here? This is Jesus. He's praying. He's speaking to the Father. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Who is they? It's disciples. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Now, what does it mean when he says that they are not of the world as I am not of the world? It's the distinction of the realities. You see, this world has a set of rules that it lives by. Inside of those rules are the laws of gravity and the laws of physics and and, I mean, you can talk about sickness and death and all of these different things. What is God able to do? Overcome all of that. Is he governed by the laws of physics? Planetary motion? No. Does sickness move him in any way? No. Is he shaken by death? No. He's not moved by any of it. Because his reality is the truth. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, just as you sent me, I send them. They are sanctified by what? Your truth. 
Your word is truth. Where do we find his word? It's captured in this, the 66 individual books governed by 40 authors over a 1,500-year span on three different continents, and yet it is cohesive. This is where we understand the ideas of who God is, what he said, what he's done, his response to us. This is how we know he doesn't work in mysterious ways. He works in predictable patterns. If he worked in mysterious ways, then we could never pray in faith because we would never know how God is going to respond. Let's look at another one. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which also was, uh, was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Do you notice that it doesn't talk about him coming in as a man? It's in the likeness of a man, being found in appearance as a man, because at no point did it change that he truly was the Son of God. Did you guys catch that? See, the mind, in verse 5, be in you which was in Christ Jesus. The form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God. If you and I would elevate ourselves to a point that we are equal with God, we are now robbing from God. But when the Son of God does it, it's okay. See, there's two realities. Anybody else that did this, no man could ever be that. But the reality was, is he truly was the Son of God. Let's go on. Matthew chapter 6. Okay, here's one that doesn't make any sense. Verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now that's an interesting verse. And the reason it's interesting is because what have we been told our entire lives? You've got to go to school to get a good education. You've got to have a good education if you want to get a good job. And you want a good job so that you can sock money away and live your best life now and live as comfortably as you can be. And then you can give more and all of that kind of stuff. Is that what this says? No. Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? There's nothing wrong with nice things. There's nothing wrong with stocking away money, any of that kind of stuff. It's where your heart is. If your heart is only guided by the finances, you're screwed up. So the world tells us to lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. This says don't worry about that. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Doesn't tell us how to do that. That comes from a later point in time. But here's the thing. There are two realities. You can focus all your attention to amassing as much wealth as you humanly can with your time on this earth. And when you die, it does what? Nothing. Nothing. Ultimately, is your legacy yielded by the fact that you were rich? No. I know a lot of poor people that died that were great men of God. That doesn't make the person. What makes the person is where their heart is. Look at another one. John chapter 15. All I'm showing you is the distinction between how the world responds and how a believer responds. Verse 18. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What is the world? Let's define our terms. It's the world of which we exist. The world we live if you were of the world, the world would love its own. So is there a reason that there seems to be animosity against biblical Christianity? 
Absolutely. They hate truth. They don't want the truth. They don't want that reality. They want this reality. And if you go along with that, have you noticed that the denominations that are opening themselves up to the cultural persuasion are admired and admonished? I have seen atheist groups who will team up with certain denominational groups because they stand together on certain subjects. They think they're crazy that they even believe in God. But the fact that they're pro-choice and pro-whatever, we can come together on that. They love their own. Why do we try so hard to be loved of this world? Is it possible? Yes, if you compromise. And only if you compromise. The world hates you. You know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What world? We've got the earthly world and the heavenly world. It's two separate realities. You guys seeing this? I know these are things that you've read before and some of you have heard, but I want you to really get this in your mind, the fact that we're not talking about the same thing. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 18, verse 33. It says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? You guys know what's going on. He's been delivered up. Pilate's getting ready to look him over and see if he's guilty, not guilty, because the Jews cannot bring capital punishment. They had to go to Rome in order to do that. Verse 34, Jesus answered him and said, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So what, look what he says. He's asking, Are you the king of the Jews? Because the embankment here that is going on, the way he's trying to accuse them, is the fact they're saying, Well, he's trying to overthrow the government of Rome. So he says, Are you the king of the Jews? He says, Are you speaking for yourselves? Or did others tell you? He's like, it's your people that brought you to me. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Does Jesus have a kingdom? Did he have a kingdom in that moment? Absolutely. Was he standing in it? No, he was not. Pilate said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And he said, uh, when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. You see, they're looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus. Jesus said, I am a king, just not of this world. Now, Pilate may have just thought he was out of his mind. But the re reality was, he is and was a king. Will he reign on this earth? Absolutely. Has he done it yet? No, he has not. His kingdom is not of this world. In other words, if somebody had attacked the king of this world, what happens? All his followers stand up and fight against him. Where were they? Watching the proceedings. So now we see this distinction in these two worlds. Now let's look at this played out a little bit more. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Whose death? Stephen's. Remember, Saul, later to be named Paul, is standing there as Stephen is giving an entire history lesson to the Jewish leaders of how the Word of God comes and then they reject it and then judgment befalls them. How they've gotten it wrong for all of their history and his point he's getting ready to make is you missed it with this whole Jesus thing too. So they end up stoning him. Saul was consenting to his death. 
And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now stop for a second. Why was there persecution? They hated Jesus. Because they hated Jesus, they hated his followers. If they were willing to compromise, would anything have happened? Nope. Remember when I told you, I think it was Smyrna, when they would walk through that aisle, and they would have that candle lit, and they would have to pitch the incense and say that Caesar is king, Caesar is Lord. And there was a great debate that was going on. This is one of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. There was a great debate. Should we just do it? We don't really mean it, but can we just do it and have a clear conscience? Because what they were doing is they're lying, saying they were trying to protect their life. You see, they were earthly focused. Those who were willing to compromise the truth. Not heavenly focused. Here, we see that they're scattered. There's persecution that's going on. Everybody leaves except the apostles. Verse 2, And a devout man carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, this is pretty intense. Saul's standing there consenting to Stephen's death. Why? Stephen is proclaiming a false narrative that Jesus was the Messiah. He couldn't be Messiah because the Sanhedrin had not declared that he was Messiah. Therefore, he is deserving of death. What is Saul doing? He's protecting the kingdom of God. Or so he thinks. Then it says, after this, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And what happens at these prisons? Ultimately, death. If nothing else, they'll die of starvation. The way it worked then is you went into the prison. They did not feed you. You had to rely on family members. Where would all their family be? They all bailed. Judea, Samaria, they all left. So Saul's not a good guy. But he has a righteous indignation. He is protecting the truth of the kingdom of God, or so he believes. Now, let's fast forward to Acts chapter 26. You guys know what happens with him, but he's going to quickly tell this narrative. Verse 14, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, well, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and witness both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me." There's so much reality in this. Let's look at this closely. First of all, he says, why are you persecuting me? Was he persecuting Jesus? Not literally. He was going and capturing Jesus' followers. But as we know from Ephesians 2, where he is the head and we are the body, where persecution comes against the followers of Christ, it comes against the body of Christ. And we know this because of this passage. Why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the codes? He says, who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So was he persecuting Jesus? Yes, absolutely he was. Then he goes further down. He's like, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and witness of both things that you have seen and of the things that I will reveal to you. What things is he seeing? 
what he's seeing right now. He's got a whole thing that's happening. And we also know that later on he goes on and God reveals stuff to him. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Now, the Jews and the Gentiles make up what? All the people on earth. There were two groups. Jews, Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. It didn't matter where you came from. If you were not born a Jew, you were the other group. Two groups. How many groups are there today? Two groups. Born again, not born again. Why did he send? To whom I now send you to do what? Open their eyes. What just happened to him? Eyes were open, ironically, and blinded at the same time. To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light. Two realities. There's a dark reality and a light reality. And from the power of Satan to God, two opposing realities that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You see, he was doing work by the power of Satan, for the God of this world, all while truly believing in his heart of hearts that he was serving and protecting God. And it took this supernatural experience to open his eyes so that he could see the truth of who Jesus was, what he's done, and the results of Paul's work. And he says, now I send you to do the same exact thing to the rest of the world. You guys see this? Alternative realities. We have two different things going on. Let's go through a few more. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we've got two realities here. We've got a life lived as a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God, and then we've got one that is conformed to the world. Which do we want to be? Two different realities. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Now, um, I don't know about you, but how many of you guys have died? Does it say in verse 3, you have died? It does. It's talking about a separate reality here. If then you were raised with Christ, which implies death, seek those things which are above. That's where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. You have two different realities. Are you guys seeing this? Like it's all over Scripture. You can go in the Old Testament, New Testament. You can see this everywhere. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's no longer I who live. Why? Because I died with Christ, but I was raised with him. It's Christ who lives in me. Boy, if we could just get a hold of that. You see, Jim said something a few weeks ago when he was preaching for me. It was very profound. And if Paul was here, which he's not, but if Paul was here, he'd be like, that's not possible. No profound thing has ever uttered the lips of Jim Claude Felton, which is not true. Just Paul. Paul needs Jesus. He's not here. This is more fun when he's here. But what he said was profound, and when it ties along exactly where we're going with all of this. He made a statement, and I bet most of you guys didn't even think about it because we don't. We just glaze over this. He says, when I lay my hands on people, 
It's as if Jesus himself is laying his hands on people. Now here's the thing. If Jesus were to walk through the door and come up, I'm laying hands on the sick, who would like me to do so? Every one of us that has a sniffle or a hangnail, I don't care what it is, we'd be up there without question, without wavering, we'd be like, Jesus is going to heal me right now. When Jim lays hands on people, it's as if Jesus is doing it. Why? It's Christ who lives in me. When I lay hands on people, as if Christ does. When you're a born-again believer and you're spirit-filled, I don't care what your name is, your title, your education, how much of the Bible you've memorized. If you do the one-year Bible plan every year, that's super. When you lay hands on people, it's as if Christ himself. That's the reality. We've got to get a hold of that. We'll come back to that another day. Let's keep going. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Now, here's we're talking about Paul here, writing the church in Philippi, following whose example? His. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. So what's he talking about? Two groups of people. You've got the group that he's weeping about as he tells them. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, which means our mind should be on heavenly things. But you guys, just think about it for a moment. Look how caught up in the earthly things that we get. I made a statement a while back, and I, and I was talking to a, a parent just recently about this. As you guys know, I go to these different homeschool conferences and stuff, and we help moms and dads that are dealing with issues that are going on in the church and the schools and all of that. And um, this five-year-old young kid who's been going to public school, this is year one going to be homeschooled for him, comes home and says, Mom, I just want to let you know I'm gay. Fifth grade, Okay. I mean, I remember being in fifth grade, and I remember using the term, but I didn't really know what it meant. We just called each other that all the time. Okay, I'm sure I'm not alone, but anyway. He comes home, and he says, Mom, I'm gay. And she's like, you are? He's like, yep. Son, so you're like physically attracted to other boys? He's like, oh, no. But I might be someday. Sounds crazy, right? Where do you think he got this idea? Came from the school. And I said, we got to be so careful with how we handle this. This is sin, and no, no question about it. But look at what we've done in the church. Because of our, and, you, and Terry was talking about this, about political stuff and all this other kind of things that are going on. But we're, we, the church is so loose with our words that we, we are reactionary to how the world speaks instead of thinking through our positions that come strictly from Scripture is that when we talk about marriage, it's between one man and one woman. And the way God designed sex is between a man 
and a woman. The plumbing works. There's no other way around it. It's between a man and a woman. And if you remember, I said, we've got to be careful with that because that's not how God designed it. He designed sex for a husband and a wife. But you see how we, without even thinking, we think we're doing good, but we're not speaking biblically. It just happens. It's just we react without thinking it through. You see, our citizenship is in heaven. We think heavenly, not earthly. When we react to the next pandemic, there'll be another one. When the financial crisis hit and the economy's in the toilet, how do we react? Do we react earthly? Do we react spiritually? Let's go on. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And for in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now we who have as prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. See, what is he talking about? This tent is referring to our earthly body. A tent is something that is just over something else. But it is not the substance of something else. Our earthly house is this body which encompasses the true us, which is that recreated new creation by God on the work that Jesus has done. And yes, we want to be with Him. And we know while we're here, we are present but absent. However, we walk by faith and not by sight. How many of you guys have been to heaven? Me neither. You see, we have a belief. We're putting a lot of faith in the words of of guys like Paul and Peter that they've captured what Jesus said and what he taught and what he did. And we put a lot of faith in this. This is why we've got to know why the Bible is true. We're not just making this stuff up. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. That's a big ask because you know what? What if it's not true? You see, you've got two realities. You've got the worldly one and the earthly one. Now look at this. We're almost done, I promise. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now look what it says. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. And when they speak against you as evildoers, that, and they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now this is an interesting statement. Because one thing you've got to understand, Peter's a Jewish man. Who was the chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? It was the nation of Israel. And we become the people who once were not a people of God and become a people of God. And we have obtained mercy as a result of what he's done. We are no longer of this world we are strictly in it watch what he says in verse 11 beloved i beg you as sojourners and pilgrims in other words you have no home here you are a temporary visitor to this but while you're here abstain from the fleshly lust which war against your soul now when we hear that word what do we think of we think of naughty stuff 
What if the lust of the flesh is simply going against the truth of the Scriptures? What if we made it that simple? In other words, the fleshly lust is easy to worry about economies or sickness or whatever else. But the truth of Scripture is Jesus took care of all of that. Okay? Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. In other words, when people see you, they should see Him. If it's as if Jesus lays His hands on people, then it's as if Jesus is speaking to those people. It's as if Jesus is playing golf on Tuesday nights. And every time He hits one out of bounds, He wants to throw His club. Jesus has a temper problem. That's not real. I'm just making that up. You see, when they see you, they see Jesus. When they hear you, they hear Jesus. And when you lay hands on them, it's as if Jesus himself is doing because it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. Look at one more passage. John chapter 17, verse 20. It says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that you also may be one in us, and the world may believe that you sent me. Who's the world? And the glory, verse 22, which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. How will they know? Because when we get our understanding that when I act and I do and I say it's as Jesus acts and he does and he says, it'll change the way you talk. It'll change the way you react. It'll change the way you act. And when you truly believe that Christ is in you, laying his hands on those sick persons, there's no doubt of faith whatsoever. You see, the reason we're getting into this now is I want to share something with you guys. There's change that's coming in this world. It's going to get darker and darker as as the days go forward. We all expect that. But the church should shine brighter and brighter. But we have compromised to the point that the church is almost unrecognizable to the one that's in Scripture. You see, when the apostles were beaten and threatened not to speak in the name of Jesus, what did they do? They went home and celebrated And says, thank you, Lord, that we are found worthy to be persecuted for your sake. And you know what they did after that? They spoke in his name and taught in his name and all of that. But the church has gone quiet. We're not standing up for truth. We react to political statements. We react to cultural statements. But what if we just consistently stayed true to the word of God? Well, we're not being reactive but proactive because it's Christ who lives in me. Now, in August... I have a, a friend of mine who is, I went to Rhema with him, but this, this man uh, is seeing miracles unlike I've seen in a very long time. His name is Chad Gonzalez. Uh, he's a, got a healing ministry. He's traveling around. We just reconnect. I haven't seen him in 20 years. Uh, been praying about, you know, bringing somebody in, all of this kind of stuff. As you guys know, I'm a teacher. I'm not the do backflips off the stage charismatic guy. It's just never been me. He's not that either. But he is getting verifiable results. I'm talking deaf ears open lame walking mute speaking all of that kind of stuff and i'm excited to bring him in but the one thing is is we need to be prepared because what gets people's attention is when christ moves on their behalf they'll begin talking about it. this guy i mean he's just recently on sid roth twice in fact he's recording a a, a series with four sid 
on this because he's, he's found something in Scripture that perhaps we've been missing. And you know what it is? It's very simple. This is what Jesus said. So this is what do. And we make a bunch of excuses of why we can't. What if we just stop making the excuses and we just do what he said? Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? So I'm excited about this. Um, and where this is going and what's going to happen. And so we'll get more details of that as we go forward. But here's the thing, guys. We've got to rea- realize that we are in two different realities. And we try to ride the fence, whether we'll admit it or not. You see, what you truly believe is displayed by how you act and how you speak. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, Lord. And I thank you that as we go forward, the reality of who we are sink into our hearts that will become people of faith and people of truth, Lord, and stand on the truth of your word and not waver in any way, shape, or form, but continue to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you and acceptable to you, that we will become your hands and feet and your mouthpiece on this earth, Lord. And we give you the glory and we thank you that every day is an opportunity that we have to live for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. See you soon.